Welcome to She's in Control podcast with your host, Sally. She's in Control is a podcast that brings to light inspiring stories of Arab women. Every Sunday, we invite you to join us as we delve into the life of impactful Arab women who has made significant contributions in fields such as sports, business, art, culture, or politics. For those who listened to previous episodes, you might have noticed that I shared inspiring stories of Arab female athletes in a storytelling mode. Today, I'm so excited to introduce the first interview with two inspiring Jordanian women, Slava Anabosi and Noor Azubaidi, who will today share to us their journey, why they left Jordan and migrated to the United States. Together, we will talk about the different challenges they faced, adaptation process to new culture, we will talk about identity, success, failures, learnings, and of course, they will tell us about their amazing project, JWI, Jordanian Women Entrepreneur. Hi, Slava. Hi, Noor. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on She's in Control podcast today. I'm delighted to launch the interview format with you. Let's start with a quick icebreaker. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? I will start with you, Slava. Hi, uh, my name is Slava Shaker and Nabulsi. I'm a dentist. I'm 54 years old. I've been in the United States since 1988. And I'm a general dentist, um, lives in New Hampshire, right outside of Boston. And I own three dental clinics, uh, two in New Hampshire, one in Massachusetts. I was born and raised in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. My dad is Nabulsi. He's Palestinian. And my mother is Bedouin Jordanian. And they migrated to Saudi Arabia, where I was born, like I said, in Jeddah in 1966. Great. Nice mix. Uh, and now we will move to Noor. So I'm a Palestinian who was born and raised in Jordan um, by two highly distinguished science professors who taught me so many things throughout my life. Once I graduated, I started my dental career in Jordan. And then I moved to the U.S. in 2017, and now I practice dentistry in Boston. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, today we have uh, a lot of topics to cover, uh, and I wanted to start with your childhood experience. I want to, to know how was it? Uh, what memory do you have of your childhood? So as you mentioned, Slava, you grew up in Saudi Arabia. How was it being a teenager growing up in Saudi Arabia? I guess uh, my uh, circumstances are not, uh, they're very unusual because um, my mom's sister married um, from El Sadeir family, which is the second most influential and the second tier royalty in Saudi Arabia. She had three kids. My cousins are Saudi and they're still there. So because of that, we had a lot of privileges and a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things and explore and experience things in Saudi Arabia. Some of the, um, you know, second-class citizens in Saudi could not, um, could not experience. So mm -hmm. I, I grew up in a very uh, close control environment, meaning that um, it's a very, very small circle of trust that we trusted because of our connections, you know, security was really high. So We just socialize with family and um, mostly uh, people that they are, like I said, well-connected to the royal family. So I didn't get the chance to 
really live a very not normal but um, you know everyday public public life. I was very secluded, um, isolated in a good way, in um, in in not so beneficial way for me. Remember, nineteen seventies and the eighties in Saudi, the country was it was wonderful. It was primitive. It was raw. It was open to endless possibilities and experiences. My best memories is uh, being in the Red Sea with my cousins. Um, those are my the memories that I hold dear to my heart. And every time I am in a very stressful situation, I try to relive it and remember it. Just the sand, the salt, the heat, the water, just being free, being children, just enjoying ourselves regardless mm-hmm. of their status or the social ranks or obligations. And as conservative as the Saudi um, back then, the society obviously changed now. Um, you know, women couldn't drive. Um, mm-hmm. Covering was mandatory and stuff like that. But there there was a lot of bittersweet uh, memories. And like I said, uh, the best memories I have being in swimming in the Red Sea with my cousins. Wow. So, so you had your cousins also living in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, my cousins are, um, they are al-Sudair blood. So they are obviously not only Saudis, but they have their own HRH titles. They have royal titles, so they can't mm-hmm. leave. Uh, I okay. mean, they, they can live somewhere else, but they are always, always have a residence in Saudi Arabia. Yes, they are still there, my first cousins. Oh my God, I have a lot of questions for you, Slava. But <laughs> gonna, <laughs> and, for, and for Noor, of course. So we're going to jump to Noor just to explain to me, because Noor, you grew up, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Jordan. How was it uh, growing up in Jordan for you? So my childhood was a happy one. Um, I come from a relatively big family. I have three older sisters and a younger brother whom I'm very close to. Um, Both of my parents were very hands-on with us when we were kids and still are, as were their parents, my grandparents. We can see it more and more now with their nine grandkids too. Um, Although my parents were both working while raising us, they made sure we are always um, had lunch together as a family, mm-hmm. more like date lunch as my mom needed time to perfect her delicious meals and for all seven of us to chat about our day. No topics were off limits. It was like very nice and it was literally like very our very own cultural roundtable. We were yeah. blessed to be always happy and have everything we need. Uh, my parents, God bless them, they worked really hard to ensure that. I love the Red Sea, but we have a different Red Sea in Jordan. Yeah. Uh, but one of my favorite memories is um, Suhoor time with when we were kids. Um, mm-hmm. As you probably know, Suhoor is the Ramadan early dawn meal and is a moment to energize before starting a day of fasting. But some of us, like me and my siblings, we might have wanted to skip it since it requires waking up very early before sunrise to eat. Or um, some of us might not be hungry or too sleepy to have a bite to eat um, at a very early hour. But the smell of my mom's delicious cooking coming from the kitchen and the fact that we all get together and sit and chat and was something not to be missed. But I have another memory um, that I love is how my father used to send me to school every single day with my special sandwich, like sometimes two of them to share with a friend or classmate. This is like they were so good that I still ask for them even while we're like going to work and he still packs it for me when he visits wow that that's so cute yeah <laughs> yeah this this is a, a memory i can relate uh, i have the same you know my mom really used to 
prepare sandwiches uh, for me, for my brother and sister. And this is like a mandatory, you know, you, you should eat it. <laughs> Otherwise, she keeps uh, asking, uh, what happened? Why why didn't you eat <laughs> the sandwiches? They have to be creative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. This is very interesting because, Slava, you, you, you had this experience in Saudi Arabia and this uh, royal environment. Uh, and as you mentioned, um, you were isolated um, in some way. And did you feel very like oppressed or sometimes uh, you don't have the space to express yourself? What were like the main challenges um, growing up in that environment? So that particular unique environment, it's very, very unique because there are a very small percentage of the people in the world get to experience that. Um, it was, um, since day one, um, we were taught about duty and service and servicing our family and representing our family because of the mm -hmm. high risk of the titles that we were connected to. And um, so since we were children, it's always don't do this. You're not supposed to do that. Do that. Mm. Um, make us proud, you know, uh, yeah. honorably and stuff. So so it, it was a lot of pressure on us as children. And um, our parents realized that. Now, remember, my dad comes from, he's Palestinian, Jordanian. Um, and he put himself through school. Uh, meaning that he got his PhD later. My dad has a PhD in literature, and he's also a political analyst um, for a lot of the platforms in, in the Middle East before he passed away. And my mom was a teacher, and that's why she ended up in Saudi Arabia, because they had to leave Jordan. Jordan in the 60s, just like any other Arab countries, they were mm -hmm. um, facing a lot of recruitment from socialism and communism in the Middle East, probably Noor's yeah. parents will remember that in the 60s. So my dad was a very passionate libertarian, and he, he was passionate about civil rights and civil liberties, and he got involved in not like speeches and discussions and public and stuff like that. And his family, they were very affluent. My dad's, my dad's uncle was one of the only two prime ministers, Palestinian prime ministers, um, in Jordan okay, um, in the 60s. So he was well-connected, but his, his first cousin or his best friend, he was like, listen, if you get arrested or caught, I, I, can't, I can't let you out. So the best thing to do is to stay low, grab, uh, get a contract, a work contract somewhere in the Middle East for five years, yeah. let everything cool off. So that's why they end up in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And then with the marriage to the royal family, so that alone as almost like he had to leave Jordan. That was mm -hmm. the pressure. He did not want to leave Jordan. But that was the first almost pressurized immigration that my dad had to. And he just got married. So he took my mom to Jeddah, Saudi. And then when my aunt married the Saudi, and on top of that, my dad felt like his identity is being, being erased. He's not mm -hmm. only a Palestinian Jordanian that lives in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, you're a second citizen there. But also now the connection to the royal family really um, suppressed his uh, views and his um, freedom of, of expression. Mm. And we felt yeah. that at home a lot. My dad was very frustrated, but he just went with the flow in order to survive. Um, don't get me wrong. Our life was very, very privileged. I never, I did not uh, ride in commercial flight airline until I went to college. I cried all the way from Jeddah to uh, Charles de Gaulle in Paris, and um, it was private vacations. It was private. Everything was private behind the scenes. But yes, we were encouraged to express ourselves. But everything was in private. Everything was yeah. in secret. 
Are you walking on eggshells? And if you express yourself to let you go celebrate or enjoy anything, it was really in a very closed, mm. um, controlled environment. Yeah. It was beautiful, don't get me wrong. It was lavish. It was oh, the, the wealth that's there. It's, it's inc- the, I can write books about the things I experienced and I've seen. But that's not the most important thing at the end of the day. And you don't realize that until you get older and you experience life that it was good. But what if, you know, mm. what if I lived Noor's life? You know, yeah. my dad never took me to school because he had a chauffeur and I have a chauffeur that took me to mm. school, you know, yeah. stuff like that. My mom didn't make us really lunches because we had the help to make us lunches. I mean, our mm. house was 10,000 square feet. I mean, it's it was it was a very complicated full life but it's different than if I was in Jordan if I was in Jordan probably will be a little bit more practical and uh, moderate that yeah. in Saudi was the was either all or nothing you know either all or nothing mm. yeah and that was for a child to go through it now I'm realizing that to go through it that's that's a lot of pressure and you build you adapt and you start building skills to do that with everything in your life and sometimes yeah. that doesn't doesn't work yeah that's very interesting because uh, we're gonna discuss also uh, why um, did you uh, decided to move to the United States and all the adaptation process because when you grow up, I believe when you grow up in a certain environment, you develop an initial identity, but you develop also a way of thinking. But when you move to another place, it's whole like the system is changing. Noor, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How was um, growing up in uh, Jordan regarding uh, the freedom of expression? Did you feel that you can say what you want wh- whenever you want? Or do you feel like a certain pressure also? Me talking as an Egyptian girl and growing up between uh, Cairo and, uh, and Paris, uh, I always remember this sentence, uh, pay attention, don't say that don't do that, what people would say, you know. This is the main sentence we're hearing when we come from um, uh, an Arab country. So I wanted to have your point of view regarding uh, the freedom of expression. So um, I don't think I had much of a complicated um, childhood or um, while growing up. As good as now, I would say everything was possible. It was uh, very open, both of my mom and, and my Aunts were like um, highly educated. Um, mm-hmm. As Rava said, like most of the um, parents at that time would go for a PhD. Both of my parents had PhDs. My mom was a working mom and um, had five children. Um, we were very close to our family and to our cousins. We would spend most of our weekends with grandparents and cousins um, exchanging experiences. What happened this week? What ha- what's going to happen next week? I don't remember like political part or um, royalty part or anything. I just remember having fun, playing around, dancing, pure and innocent childhood memories. That's very beautiful. So it's a tricky question, but if you um, have to summarize your childhood in one word, what would you say, Slava? Complicated. And you, Nur? It was warm. That's interesting to have uh, two different <laughs> point of views. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Jordan. 
That's fine. We have a good representation, uh, two different point of views. So now what would be interesting is to understand your journey. So now, Slava, you grew up in Saudi Arabia in a very conservative environment. Why did you decide to immigrate to the United States? Was it your decision or not? Uh, how was it the process? So as Noor said, um, Jordanians are very, very open-minded. Um, don't get me wrong. Our household was amazing. Um, my mom was a teacher. And we, again, because we were privileged, we had a lot of access of the outside world more than any Saudi. Um, we used to have all the you know American shows taped. Um, we used to watch Disney all the time. We traveled a lot. Like I said, I traveled to Europe and the United States from age 5 to age 18. Now, I'm also one of five. I'm number two. I'm the first daughter of two. And uh, my mom always worked. She, Like I said, she was a teacher and she became a principal of a, a private school in, in Saudi Arabia. And she's very, very successful. But inside our household, I guess the adaptation process started with me because I had to adapt Slava outside my home and Slava inside my home. Inside my home was mm -hmm. a very Jordanian culture. Outside the house, I was representing Saudi Arabia because I had the connection to my cousins. So, you know, my dad applied to, when you're in Saudi and you're non-Saudi, you're a second class citizen. Education is free. So I wanted to go to dental school. In order for Saudi Arabia to pay for my dental school, I have to be a Saudi. And my dad understood that. He tried to apply to the Saudi citizen three times with all our connections we had. And actually, it was almost going to cost him $2 million for the citizenship. They absolutely refused. And the reason why I come to find out that because he's Nabilsi. Nabilsi, it referred to the town of Nablus in Palestine, and they didn't want to really to connect themselves with such a high, volatile area, um, nationalizing somebody like my dad with his writing mm -hmm. and with his publicity, too. So although he has cousins, Nabulsi, from Syria and from Lebanon, they were nationalized in Saudi Arabia because they did not feel there's a threat from Lebanon and Syria. So that alone, knowing that my dad was rejected after all the investments and all the time that he spent in Saudi Arabia raising us, raising the family and having that connection, having rejected again from belonging to his second home after Jordan. So when I realized that, I had two options. Either marry a Saudi which I actually escaped to three arranged marriages. Very, very promising. Very, I could have been a very wealthy woman. Um, or to go to Jordan, American University in Amman, and, and study there and then go to dental school anywhere else. Now, I, I didn't relate to Jordan. I visited Jordan. I was a tourist. I was a guest. I went every two years for about 10, 10 days. I was more, I related to Saudi Arabia a lot more, and I related to the West a lot more. So... I decided to come to the United States so I can pursue my undergrad degree and then dentistry. And I thought it would be much easier if I started my journey in the U.S. so I can finish dental school. And that's why I, I left. But I felt really bad for my dad because he was forced to leave Jordan. Then he was forced to leave Saudi. And he wanted to go back to Jordan, but he ended up here in the United States retiring with us because all the kids ended up, ended up here. That's why I left. Okay. It was a mature process. So you take your time to think about it uh, before making that decision. Um, I've been thinking about it since I was a child because 
Okay. Because um, living in such a, a conflict, Saudi Arabia, just like Jordan, it's in the middle of, you know, unstable in um, region. So um, living in conflict in area, I thought it's like, you know, what if something happens? What mm-hmm. if like a, a war, you know, surges yeah. in, in Israel, you know, Palestine and goes into Jordan and I'm going to, I'm going to have to leave again. So that thought is always in the back of my head because of how volatile region is. And I thought the safest way and the easiest way is to mm-hmm. come to the U.S. Back then, it wasn't really a tough decision to make because I was 19 years old. And I was like, you yeah. know, as long as I don't end up getting married, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. But now, knowing what I know now and with life, what I've yeah. seen in life, um, the realization of that, it, it makes me sad. There's nothing worse than realizing that your own country pushed you out or your own country let you down. So you carry that with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sad uh, because, you know, sometimes you don't receive like acknowledgement or what you deserve in your own country. And you feel like you, you need to go elsewhere and in another country to, to be able just to leave. You know, you mentioned that uh, due to the political environment and uh, the situation there, it was more safe for you to move to the U.S. and also for your career opportunity, I guess. So you moved to the U.S. with uh, your father and all your family, Slava, or? No, I am the first one that left. Okay. Yeah, I was 19 years old and everybody followed. So the way, the way you feel when you do that, jumping around, is like a child in foster home. You know mm-hmm. your family couldn't keep you, then they give you to a foster home. Somebody will adopt you. Then you have to research for identity. And that's that's how I feel now after all mm. these years. And I'm sure my that's how my dad felt. Because I didn't understand it when he wrote about it, when he talked. I was like, Dad, what are you talking about? You had a great life. And he goes, no, you don't understand when you are have to rip your roots out and start all over again, which you don't want to because you have to. But that's mm. exactly how you feel. You feel like a foster child that's going from one home to another. It's just going to stop. Yeah. No, but I left first. And everybody followed. <laughs> okay, so you, you were the leader. I'm the lead, yeah, I know, the troublemaker. <laughs> okay, and uh, what about you, Noor? So why? I know that you, you've you been uh, in the U.S. for six years now. What uh, was the main reason that pushed you to, to come to the United States? So basically, after I finished my dental residency and started working as a periodontist in Jordan, I realized that I'm at crossroads in my journey. I could stay in Jordan in my comfort zone and invest in a dental practice of my own. But that's something that wasn't going to challenge me much or satisfy me. Or I could leave Jordan and my comfort zone, invest in myself and embark on a new adventure that would lead me to learn more, to hone my craft and become the dentist I always hoped to be. Then I chose to embark on this new adventure in the U.S. I chose to invest in myself. My parents, they're like very academically oriented. So they were very pushing to uh, for further education, um, learning never stops. I was the last one to leave from my family in Jordan. Um, my siblings were already in the U.S. So basically was investing in myself was the best investment that I'll ever make. Um, that was like the the push behind my move. And like my mom would keep saying, it will not only improve your life, it will also improve the lives of all those around you. So they were like, okay, let's do it. Move, go challenge yourself. And if it didn't work out, you can come back back home anytime. Here I am. It's been six years. It's been challenging, but it's very rewarding. 
and we're going to talk about uh, all the adaptation process and uh, the challenges. So in your case, Noor, it was more personal decision. You wanted to go to the U.S. to be able to have a better education, better diploma, and better career opportunities, right? So basically, I, I had uh, my dental degree from Jordan, and I did another dental okay. degree from the okay. U.S. So it was the same degree um, at the end. It's a different um, educational system, though. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was more of a personal choice. I knew that I had more to offer. And at that time, Jordan was not the place for me to fulfill my potentials. Okay. And was it common to immigrate to the United States when you made that decision? So for someone who've been working for five, six years in Jordan and then decide to leave and go back to school, It's not something that common. Usually people do it before um, okay. before starting working and going through the adult life, I want to say there. They do that like right, right after finishing school. But um, I'm happy I did it this way now. I know what I could have been missing in career-wise or I had a, a small taste of the life in Jordan that made it actually easier for me to start a new one here. Mm -hmm. And especially maybe also the fact that you had also uh, your siblings in the U.S. Uh, uh, was also a source of motivation for you. and uh, Definitely it's a source of motivation, but um, the U.S. is a very huge country. And as much as we try to see each other, we don't live in the same states. There's a lot of planning and vacation days and flying to see each other. So it's I'm, I know I'm closer Uh, we're in the same time zone at least, but um, it's not as easy as, as it sounds. Yeah, we're going to address that point uh, right now uh, about the adaptation process. Uh, in your case, Slava, so you were only 19 years old when you moved to the U.S. You were alone. My question to you is, how was it to go alone to a new country, new language, a new way of living, uh, new everything? I came, when I came, when I decided to come, I'm the one who, I'm the first one in my family to decide to, my dad, like I said, gave me the option to go to Jordan or go to the West Europe or um, United States. First of all, my parents did not want me to be a dentist compared to new oh. parents. No, my dad wanted me a fashion designer and my mom wanted me to do art history and live in museums for the rest of my life. That's what they wanted. Or, you know, get married, whatever. I mean, they knew I was smart and all that, but they mm -hmm. said, why do you want to look at people's mouth the rest of your life? So remember, United States was a whole different country. It looked different. It acted different, had different values in 1988. Noor came six years ago. This was 35 years ago. So when I came in, and, and also remember, I've been visiting and touring Europe since I was five. From five to 18, we vacationed yeah. in, in the U.S. and stuff. So uh, the West was not like... For me, it was like, that's where I want to be because I can be whoever I want to be without, nobody knows who I am. So I don't have to, you know, answer to this and answer to that. What's supposed to do? Don't wear this. Don't talk to this one. Don't talk to that one. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I had that freedom. So I wanted that freedom just to rediscover myself. There was no culture shock because again, I was used to the westernized life and, and our lifestyle inside our house in Saudi was very westernized, you know, very liberal, very open. Like Noor said, we talked about everything until we, you know, we went outside and we presented ourselves to society. Then the, the whole, um, the game changed basically. 
I believe the Western lifestyle suited me. That said, the most challenging things was the realization that my emotional, spiritual, and social support system was missing. Mm. I struggled to make friends. That's my most of my challenge because everybody that I knew home, they were very close and dear to me. So I treated strangers like family. And in the Western world, that is mm. very overwhelming to yeah. the Western people because they're a lot more reserved. They don't know who you are. They don't know your culture. But that's all I knew. I did not know how to make friends out mm-hmm. of strangers because everybody I knew knew us. <laughs> you know, everybody's connected. So that was very overwhelming to the point that, uh, to the people, the point that I just failed in making friends because if I mm-hmm. give it all to a stranger as if they're treating me like family, back home, people admire that, respect that, they appreciate that. In the yes. Western world, they don't. And I became m- more alone. Not only I'm missing my you know, support system at home, they're so far away, I couldn't make any friends until I met my husband in undergrad, ended up getting married, and I met my in-laws, and my in-laws become the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. I love them. Allah Hamhum. Um, may they uh, rest in peace. They became my family here and my, um, my strength and my backbone and my support system. You know, I knew the language. I used to speak four languages, English, French, Arabic, Italian, and a little bit of German. Uh, my mom spoke three languages. So speaking different language, different culture, it wasn't really a struggle for me, except for, like I said, representing myself. You know, how do I present myself without shedding everything that I know? But the two emotions that really fueled my drive um, was fear and guilt. Okay. Fear, I was very fearful. And that's what drove my ambition and drove, I think, my success or my achievements. The fear of not succeeding, the fear mm-hmm. of failure was not acceptable. It was not an option because you need to understand the psychology back home. Everybody is watching you under a microscope, at least from mm-hmm. my end, under my scope. like, what you left us for this, you better achieve something Mm. that's so tangible that we can see the value of you leaving everything behind and succeeding. And that put a lot of pressure on you. And also the other emotion is the guilt of not succeeding. And I left home for nothing. So Mm. those are the two emotions that really fueled my drive. And I had to, had to get stuff done without even thinking about you know, do I fit in? Do I look the same? I I wasn't really busy with that as much until I got a little bit older. Everything settled, everything slowed down. But when I was younger, I was so busy trying to achieve as much as possible to make this journey worthwhile and and the sacrifice worthwhile, if that makes sense. And for you, what were the criteria of success that your parents were considering? Failure wasn't an option from my parents because my parents our culture as you guys know uh mm-hmm. having a 95 out of 100 is failure <laughs> so yes, it's either, true. <laughs> it's either it's either perfect or it's it's not acceptable especially you sacrificed everything and you kicked everything that you have behind you mm-hmm. to go in and 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 seek another life the success that i imagined you know, it was in my head is achievements, um, recognition, Mm -hmm. um, acknowledgement, appreciation, inspiring other people. And those, those are achievements, but I couldn't really achieve that here. If I was back home, you know, my name will kind of track some kind of, 
you know, mm. attention. My connection will will attract some kind of attention. But when you're here alone, you have to start from scratch, building that identity and building yeah. that kind of, you know, who are you? What do you contribute to society? Why should mm-hmm. society listen to you? What constantly um, haunted me to to achieve in, in, in this country? But yeah, like I said, um, the U.S. in 1988, remember, there's no cell phones. There was mm-hmm. no social media. There was no YouTube. You just had to talk to people. It was all about words and writing and communicating and connecting. It was yeah. a lot of work. There was nothing under our fingertips to push a button and connect me to France or connect, you know, I can see you. I, I'm talking to you right now. There was none of that. There was none of that social media. So it was a lot harder and it's a lot of work and it took a long time to achieve. Yeah. I have another question and we're going to uh, jump to, to Noor also experience uh, regarding the adaptation process. A uh, question for you, Slava. So you, you mentioned that it was really challenging for you to make friends. Today, unfortunately, there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, Arab women's, their freedom. A lot of people think that uh, we as Arab women, we don't have uh, this uh, freedom of expression. We can't... Uh, make choices by our own. We can't succeed. Unfortunately, some people believe that we are oppressed. And if we talk also about Saudi Arabia, I know that many people maybe travel to Egypt or, or Jordan on, or other countries in the Middle East. But unfortunately, today I'm speaking about like my point of view and what I'm seeing in France. People think that Saudi Arabia is very closed country, you know, with a lack of uh, freedom. Was it like the same situation in your time and the same misconceptions or how you've been like um, perceived at that time? So when I came, it was 1988. And unfortunately, in 1991-92, the Gulf War started too. So I was still here in the United States. Now, remember, my generation, we witnessed a lot of wars. <laughs> we witnessed... Uh, still witnessing. And still, I know, and I can't believe we still are. Harb October, you know, in Egypt, 1963, I think it is. And then it was, um, you know, Sabro Shatila. That was huge, huge. I mean, it just turned airborne. 1975, Lebanon War, um, hostages in Iran, Afghanistan War, the Gulf War. So that all, I mean, you can't blame the world. But Saudi Arabia was very different uh, up to the Gulf War. So... Before the Gulf War, I have to say it, it's really hard to describe. It was, everything was available, but okay. everything was never spoken of. So you can have parties, you can have alcohol, you can have mm. mixed parties, swim, uh, pool parties. I went to those parties, you know, just like what's happening in Iran right now, exactly the same. Then mm. the Gulf War started and the extremism really spread in Saudi. And the last time I was in Jeddah was 1992, uh, 1991, December, before I got married. And I got married August 92. It was a whole different feel. And I looked at my dad. It's like, dad, you got to get out. This is not Saudi that I know. And that's why he left. He left right mm-hmm. after I got married, came to the United States. And then Hamad bin Salman, the new king that came, and he op- now he opened up the whole, you know, the whole country. I remember in 1992, there's so many demonstrations of women in Riyadh. They came out and they were just driving because they just got sick and tired of not being able to drive. Because if you have an emergency at home, you have to wait for a car. Somebody can mm-hmm. die at home. You can't go to hospital. If there's a fire in the house, you can't get out of anywhere. You can't. You can call yeah. somebody, but you can't drive. They demonstrated. They got arrested in 91, 92, and then and that's how strict it was. 
Now it's it's not the same. Now me coming here in 1988, everybody knew. Oh, you're from Saudi Arabia. Do you have camels in the desert? I mean, all those jokes, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're coming. Oh, yeah, it's like, oh, do you have a husband waiting for you over there? I'm like, no, I don't have a husband waiting uh, for me. So it was different. Now what they did over there with Dubai being built out and being open to all international events and cultures. It's a little bit different. It was hard before because when I talk to people right now, they kind of know, but they don't know where Jordan is. Like, where's Jordan? It's like, oh, you know Israel? It's like, oh, okay, I know Israel. And that's why we started, we'll talk about the project, the, the Jordanian Women Entrepreneur, just to bring awareness who we are and what we are. But one of the funniest things that an American told me, um, older lady, I don't know where I was. And she's like, where are you from? It's like, I'm from Jordan, born and in Saudi Arabia. She goes, hmm, that's interesting. And I said, how is that? She goes, Honey, wherever you find yourself in any country, it's either because you're born there or you're running from something. And mm. I will never, ever forget that um, because that reminds me of what happened to me and my dad, you know, going from Jordan to Saudi. So either you're running from something mm. or you're born in that country. And that's, that's basically how she simplifies it for me. So I told her, I was like, I wasn't born here. She goes, are you running from something? And I'm thinking, it's like, yeah, kind of, sort of, but, you know, I didn't share that with her. Um, but, yeah, people were nice. People were, I think, because of the lack of social media and because of the lack of the social platforms, people were not as uh, sensationalized as they are right now. People are not, they were a lot more cautious and very careful to express their opinion about other people from other countries. Mm. I mean, maybe because I was in academia, you know, I was in college on campus and I just dealt with students or professors. I don't know. Um, if you talk to my husband, Ehab, that grew up in Jersey City, it's a whole different story. I don't remember ever being subjected to a level of ignorance that really you know, insulted me or hurt me or anything like that. They just, they did, just didn't know. And they were mm -hmm. very kind to let you know, oh, yes. sorry, we did not know. That's why we said what we said. Otherwise they won't say anything to you. But again, the country, the whole country have changed since I'm sure. Depends who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know your opinion on that, Noor. How was uh, the adaptation process um, leaving Jordan and moving to the US uh, just six years ago? So it's not like a long time. Uh... No, I was in my mid-20s. It was a bit different. So as an Arab, a Palestinian, and as a Muslim woman, now living in the US, I had to figure out how to live and build a new life in this like seemingly different culture. While on the surface, there are some cultural differences, such as the way that we look, the way we talk, the way we dress. As Slava mentioned, the language, the holidays celebrated, uh, how to navigate the educational system, how to approach professional development and build friendships and relationships. I'm convinced that we are all much more alike than we are different. That the experiences that identify us, no matter where we grow up, bring out the same very human reactions of tears, laughter, love, fear guilt, all these emotions. But I'm here today to share like a message of like cross-cultural understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that somewhere within my story, you might also relate and hear something that sounds familiar. My hope is that women will see part of themselves in me, just as I have seen myself reflected in other women's lives from around the world. And maybe you have an experience like that too, where something you thought was so foreign and strange revealed itself to be wonderful. 
or when a judgment you had uh, you had made on the basis of looks turned out to be totally wrong. But so often today, in a world grown smaller, we are forced to confront new things, new people, new cultures, new ways of behavior um, that are different from what we are used to. And the change can be a little bit scary. Like some of the simple examples of adaptation is how to deal with daily small things, mm-hmm. like filling up the gas in your car by yourself. This is never happens in Jordan, for example. Adjusting to professional work, dealing with the colleagues. Here it's more formal. In Jordan, it's less formal. It's more friendly. Mm-hmm. You, but you, It's very common to spend time and work with colleagues outside work. Here it's a little bit complicated when uh, learning more about the healthcare system, the insurance, the retirement plan. All these things are much easier in Jordan because the options are less and the, like, the tax code is simpler. On the flip side, um, dealing with the government paperwork might be easier here, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, to get my dental license in Jordan, I had to submit application in person with a bunch of accompanying paperwork that you would have to collect from different agencies. Here, I was able to do it all online in one day. And there are like so many similar examples, like driver license, passport all these things. I also like another adaptation example. We we just talked about it earlier in the morning. My name. In Arabic, there's only way to spell my name. It's Noor. It's so easy. But in English, you can spell it N-O-O-R. And that's the way I spelled it my whole life before moving to the US. But my actual name, like my actual official passport name was spelled N-O-U-R. That was a quiet transition for me to remember to always spell it differently when I came here. It's these simple daily examples that makes it a little bit hard to adapt. I heard someone once say like people often seek refuge by circling the wagons, clinging tightly to what they know and trying to wall out what they do not. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet when we do that, we diminish ourselves. And I can't agree more. If we are to get beyond the stereotypes, like um, Slava said, like Arabs live in tents or drive camels, or women are deprived of education or not allowed to drive, we will have to really get to know one another. Like come with an open mind, ask questions without judgment instead of limiting yourself with preconceptions. Yeah. And we should view this as a wonderful opportunity, um, not a terrible burden, because the more we try to stand in one other's shoes and appreciate one other's perspective, the more dimension, depth, and texture will ultimately add to our own. I just thought about this. Like, for example, I recently attended the World Cup with my husband. So there we were, two Palestinians who live in the U.S., rooting for Brazil and Argentina, traveling to Qatar, meeting folks from all over the world. It was one of the best experiences of my life. We were all united in this wonderful shared experience of attending a sporting event and enjoying it. I think we and other people enjoyed it because we were all focused on what we all had in common, mm-hmm. our love for the game and the experience, instead of our differences. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, Ya ayuhal nas, inna khalqnakum min dhakarin wa untha wa ja'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'il li ta'arafu. Inna akramakum inda Allahi atqaakum. Inna Allahu alimun khabir. Help me with the translation, but it's something like, we created you from a pair of a male and female. We made you into nations and tribes that you may know each other. But the most honored of you in sight of Allah is the most righteous of you. That experience was one of the best examples I could think of of that verse. Mm-hmm. And it was so true and evident in front of me. Like the most important part of adaptation is always going back to my roots, mm-hmm. values, morals that my parents instilled in me, which enabled me to adapt to this world without abandoning my roots, my culture, my values. 
like whenever I'm faced with a new challenge or situation, I always rely on those values to figure out how to best handle it. So far, it's been guiding me in the right direction. So far, it's only been six years and never led me astray. But this is where I go back whenever I have a challenging situation. Thank you, Noor, for just sharing your adaptation process. I have a question for you. We mentioned with Slava that she really had those challenges to make friends. In your case, from my understanding, it was more like a work experience for you. So you were working uh, uh, in Jordan, but you moved to the US and you discovered the the workplace uh, there and the work environment. But in general, the people were curious to discover you, to discover Jordan, to discover your identity, or do you feel like you you had to, to go and to talk to people uh, by yourself? So to I don't like using the word fit in, but like to fit in, I had to tone it down a little bit in the meaning of like, very silly example. In my building, there was a lady who I was pregnant and then couple of months, we saw them coming back from the hospital with balloons and a car seat and all that. My initial reaction was like, oh my God, we have a, a baby in the building. That was the first baby in the building. So I was like, okay, let's go get them cake and balloons and like, just give some food for the mother. Mm-hmm. Like my husband was like, okay, just tone it down in the US. People don't do that. Back home, you would do it like in the blink of an eye. So I did that, but I was like shaking. We had to like, I couldn't make something from home because I don't know what they would think. I'm an Arab, I'm Muslim. My food would be weird for them. So I had to like grab something ready-made, place it on their door, like write a note saying it's Mm -hmm. from us. And then they were like, oh my God, that was so sweet. That was so nice. To me, it was so natural, but to them was a big deal. Same thing with like my office. Like I tried to get close to the, the team we have like a very nice team. We're like hard workers and all, but like on a personal level, there there's so many walls built in the U.S. that these walls don't exist in Jordan. Like I would know all the stories about my patients. Like I would know like mm. their family. Um, here they, it's a little bit more formal. They try to keep it in the name of professional, but um, it's a different meaning for us back home. Yeah, I totally relate. You know, he, I feel like the same in Egypt, uh, even in school or even in the streets, you know, when you go and to, to a grocery and you want just a shop, you start to talk with everyone and the cashier, etc. Here it's quite different, uh, the approach. And uh, I think it takes more time to become close to someone and start to uh, be open. 